Well, you can grab a seat, uh, and good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning, uh, and welcome. Man, I didn't know uh, that we were going to just have the Saturday that we did, so congratulations uh, to the Texas A&M Aggies for proving that we can beat anyone with anyone. Uh, that was pretty great. Uh, we uh, are definitely on our way into this semester. Uh, how many of us went to the Houston game last week, actually? I'm kind of curious. Okay. All right. Fewer than I thought. But that's great. That's great. That's great. Uh, how many of us, I'm also still kind of curious, how many of us are freshmen? This is our first semester. We're class of that number that I'm not going to say because I don't want to make you make your, cool. Okay, great. Well, hey, welcome back. I know that you are dead tired of lifting both arms and yelling. So you know what? This is a safe place and we're not going to do it here. We're going to just, we're going to take a break and you get to just leave those arms down. Uh, and we're all going to just Love having our arms in our laps. Uh, well, hey, man, welcome back. We, we're so excited uh, to see you guys. We know that this first month is crazy. We know that maybe some of you have been bouncing around to different churches, uh, testing the waters of different places. I mean, that, that's great. And I, I hope, I hope and I pray that every single one of you finds a place somewhere. I, I really hope and pray that you stick somewhere. It doesn't have to be here. That, that really is not my number one goal. My goal is just for you to stick somewhere. At the end of this service, man, we're going to kind of let you know ways that you can get involved. Uh, and just so you know, also, if it helps you stick, if you're like showing up right now and you're like, man, I don't, I, what's going on with the parking and what's going on with all these people right next to me? And, you know, we still have a 7 p.m. service. So if you're interested in that, if you want to push back your study schedule or push up your schedule, whatever it is, you know, we meet here in this room at 7 o'clock every Sunday night. Same message, a little bit different band, but, you know, it's, it's a great thing. It's something that I love. Uh, it's one of my kind of just favorite things that we have in our college ministries, our 7 p.m. service. So just be aware that that's happening. Uh, and, man, I'm excited that we're here. Uh, because uh, I get to share a little bit of historical knowledge with you. Uh, I was a history major at Texas A&M University. Yep, there we go. Thank you. Uh, and we, uh, in history, man, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you over and over and over again, I just, I love historical stories. I love looking at the men and women that have gone before us that have sometimes done insane things. Uh, one of those people was a guy by the name of Henry Clay Frick. Henry Clay Frick. And this guy was just a cut above the rest. And by cut above the rest, I mean he was a horrible, horrible person. Uh, He was essentially a real-life supervillain. He was the chairman of Carnegie Steel. If you know what Carnegie Steel was, that was in the early 1900s, late 1800s, in the Industrial Revolution. Uh, Steel was like a big deal. Everyone was like, whoa, steel? Awesome. We can build more than Mud bricks, like, and so they decided we're going to use steel in everything. And so guys like Henry Clay Frick uh, capitalized on that. They took advantage of the movement uh, of industry. And, you know, if you looked at him, he looked like a very nice guy, uh, could kind of be your grandfather-ish, right? If your grandfather loved velvet suits, I think is what it is. And uh, if your grandfather, again, was a really evil person uh, because... Henry Clay Frick in 1892 thought, okay, we're going to capitalize on this steel thing and everyone's going to want to work for us. And so because of that, I'm not going to cut anybody any slack. And so sure enough, when a group of workers at one of the plants that he oversaw came to him, uh, their contract was up, the union approached him and they said, hey, 
you know, like we, we're looking for a little bit of a raise, just a cost of living increase. Please, you know, we want to increase our wages a little bit. Steel's booming. We know there's a lot of capital and, you know, there's a lot of money flowing through the system right now. And Henry Clay Frick just looked at him and counter-offered counter uh, a 22% pay cut because they asked for a raise. I'm assuming at that point he also just took a stack of bills and lit it on fire just to show how little he cared. Uh, and these guys, man, they got upset. They heard him, you know, he was like, oh, no, a cut. And they got upset, so they decided to strike, they decided to pick it. And so the union uh, got together, and they started, uh, you know, marching around and protesting outside the factory, thousands of workers. And so Henry Clay Frick said, you know what? Great, I'm just going to bus in new workers, and you know what? You're not even going to be able to come inside because he went ahead and installed, no kidding, he installed sniper towers around the factory with guys with rifles. Uh, He also set up cannons that would shoot boiling liquid on anyone who approached. Uh, And he also put up a big barbed wire fence, which I'm like, seems a little redundant after the cannons, but, you know, that's fine. Uh, He set up the fence and had it basically made it into a fortress. And as he's trying to bust people in, though, uh, those thousands of workers were still, they would get in the way of the buses, get in the way of the transports. And so they had a big issue right outside the compound, right outside the factory. So then Frick decided, well, okay, I'm going to hire 300 what were called Pinkertons. All right? And Pinkertons at that time were basically, they were strike busters. Uh, they were guys that were mercenaries that you would hire to come in and just kind of like, rah, 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 like just kind of disperse people because they'd be big and burly and have little clubs, I guess, and bowler hats. Yeah, see? Like they'd come in and do that. And so he hired them to come in. They just made the situation way worse. And there is this infamous time, uh, this infamous day where basically just chaos erupted. All the striking workers, uh, they had all brought guns with them to the occasion, and they had their own cannon somehow. And so in the midst of this kind of big chaotic debacle, uh, there was just like injuries, and there were people got killed uh, with all this firearms and all this stuff happening. The military, like the army, had to show up to disperse everyone, to settle it all down. And at the end of that, the workers, the union workers were like, okay, like how are we going to fix this? And one guy decided, well, Frick is the problem, right? He's the, he's the top dog. He's the source of all of our frustration. And so he decided to show up, snuck into Frick's office one day at the factory uh, and brought a gun. And he shot Frick twice in the neck, all right? So boom. Neck shot, boom, another neck shot, all right? That's a lot of neck shots. <laughs> Completely unfazed, Frick stood up, went to the guy, grabbed him, like held him down, pinned him, was starting to fight him until authorities could show up, arrest the guy. Uh, at this point, I'm assuming his Wolverine healing factor was just like mending his skin together. And he went home on rest for a week After a week, he was back at work. First thing he did, remember, this guy, this guy, a week later, back at work, first thing he did was he fired 2,500 workers just kind of across the board. And for everyone that was left, he cut their pay in half. All right? This is Henry Clay Frick, the grandfather from your darkest nightmares. 
And this guy, man, when, when people saw him in charge, when we hear those stories, we think, wow, he probably shouldn't have had the position that he had. Like, this was a psychopath. He was unfit to lead. And the truth is, we've all been in situations, we've all seen organizations or classrooms where we think, wow, this person who's leading right now, they're unfit for that position. It doesn't seem like they should actually be in authority. Whether that person's ruling a, a country or a business or a classroom or an organization or, or whatever. We see people in positions of authority, and at times we have the thought of, man, that's, that's not right, and, and I could do better. Right? We've all had that moment where we look at someone in charge and we think, I, I could do better. It's a thought we've all had, and honestly, it's a thought that our culture encourages. See someone in charge, you don't like what they're doing, hey, step up, take over. Why? Why are we encouraged in that thought process? Well, I'll tell you, it's because our culture as a whole, it embraces relativism. Right? We talked about this last couple weeks. Our culture embraces relativism, meaning that everyone should just follow their own path, that if everyone just did what they think is best, it will lead us as a society to find peace and harmony. But we're studying the book of Judges. And what we see in this book is another culture that embraced Relativism, but instead of finding peace and harmony at the end, they found rebellion and destruction and death. That's what they found at the end of that relativism rainbow. What we see in the book of Judges is a perfect picture of why we as believers are actually called to reject relativism. We reject it so that we can embrace God's path that he set before us, that he's called us to walk Because God alone knows what's best. And it's only his path that leads to life instead of the death that our world embraces. This week, this morning, we're going to be in Judges chapter 9. If you have a Bible or if you want to pull out your app or whatever it is. Judges chapter 9, and we're looking at the life of a guy named Abimelech. And what we're going to realize, what we're going to see in his life is it's a picture, it's an illustration, it's an example for us because, you know, sometimes we might think it's best if we were in charge. We're going to have that thought. We've had that thought. We're going to continue to have that thought. We're going to think, man, it'd be best if I was in charge. But what God shows us through judges, what God shows us especially through Abimelech is that pride can warp our perspectives. Pride can cloud our judgment. And that instead of building our own kingdoms, instead of focusing on gaining our own followers, God calls believers to be faithful with what they've been given. And then he takes care of the rest. In Judges chapter 9, it kicks off introducing a few new characters. Now Abimelech, son of Jerubbaal, went to Shechem to see his mother's relatives, and he said to them and to his mother's entire extended family, this. Tell all the leaders of Shechem this. Why would you want to have 70 men, all Jeroboam's sons, ruling over you when you could have just one ruler? Recall that I am your own flesh and blood. All right, so we're kind of wondering what's going on. Who are these people? Blood, why? Why more blood? Why is judges always bloody? What we see right here, 
uh, is Abimelech is the son of Jerubal. That's the name we're going to see consistently in this chapter. But this is actually a nickname that was given to a guy named Gideon. Gideon uh, is one of our maybe more well-known judges. Uh, the chapters preceding this, we see Gideon rise up and he delivers Israel from the hands of the Midianites. These really evil dudes. Uh, God called Gideon though up and gave him this little army and there was this crazy underdog victory. And Gideon did a pretty good job, not just delivering them from the Midianites, but then even establishing a pretty good system of rule uh, and kind of having everyone at peace for the most part. Uh, But what we see right here is that he has a son named Abimelech. And what we would see uh, further is that he's from Shechem. And that's important because that's not a true descendant of Israel, right? He's not actually a descendant of the true tribes of Israel. He was actually born because because Gideon uh, slept with one of his slaves, and that slave gave birth to him. So Abimelech was really just sort of a half-son. So one of Gideon's major faults that he had later in his life is that he married a bunch of women. God never told anyone to do that. God never approved of that. Gideon took a ton of wives, and so he wound up having 70 sons. But Abimelech was not one of those 70. Abimelech was kind of pushed off to the side. In fact, in social settings, Abimelech would have been basically kind of neglected. He would have kind of been that guy that no one really talks about, right? You kind of shun him, pretend he doesn't really exist. Maybe every once in a while, Gideon would show up at the house with like a birthday card with $5 in it, but that's kind of it. And what we see is Abimelech says, hey, you know what? I've got all this bitterness. I've got all this resentment. And I've seen kind of the depth, the darkness of what Gideon, what Drew Baal can do. And I don't trust his sons. So I tell you what, you people of Shechem, you, you my home people, you should just make me your ruler. And I'd be the one and only ruler. You wouldn't have to listen to these 70 sons. That's going to be confusing, right? He's saying, you know, how do you even split it up among 70 people? And honestly, right here, what we see is the setup for what in our culture, in our stories would probably be like a really feel-good, kind of unlikely hero kind of story, right? Like, this is the Cinderella story. She's kind of neglected. She's kind of like a half-sister to all the other sisters, and they're like, like, ah, Cinderella, ah, and she is, like, stuck (laughs) from the Industrial Revolution as well, and so she's just kind of neglected and pushed out of the side, and then eventually, though, her fairy godmother shows up. She's like, no, boopity-boop, and then she becomes a princess. We're like, yay, and we want that to happen, right? We want that kind of unlikely hero to arise, we see it with Cinderella, we see it with the boy version of Cinderella, a.k.a. Harry Potter, uh, where he goes through the exact same situation. It's literally the exact same thing, except he kind of turns into a Christ figure, which we're like, ah. So we see right here Abimelech rising up. He's been neglected, he's been oppressed, and we're like kind of in our down deep, we've kind of been trained as a culture to think like, yeah, like he, yeah, he should be in charge. Like he probably should be the guy that steps up and rules. So then he says... Or sorry, so then uh, we should be encouraged, we're probably encouraged when we see the people of Shechem uh, turn to each other as the relatives, and they spoke on his behalf to all the leaders of Shechem and reported his proposal, and the leaders were drawn to Abimelech, much as probably we are. They were drawn to him, and they said, he is our close relative. Right? In other words, he's from our camp. He's kind of one of us. So pretty good argument. Maybe we do want someone that knows us, that can relate to us. We want that person to be in charge. We don't want these just random 70 dudes from who knows where ruling over us. We want our close relative. And so they paid him 70 silver shekels out of the temple of Baal Barith. Abimelech then used the silver to hire some lawless, dangerous men as his followers. So right here, 
we start to see, okay, we're going down a little bit of a dark path. It started off as Cinderella, and it was like, oh, yay. But now it's, mm, I don't know. He's taking money from the temple of Baal Barith. Now, this is significant uh, because this is essentially like campaign funds, right? Anytime someone's running for president, everyone always looks at, okay, well, who are they taking campaign donations from? Like, oh, the pro-beard alliance gave that guy money. He must hate mustaches. Like, we, we know that if whoever you take money from is going to influence your thoughts and your opinions, we're very, very focused on that. He took money from a pagan temple. But all that is a common term uh, for false gods. It means master or lord. And it's a term that we see a lot of times in Scripture just describing some sort of uh, false god. In fact, when Gideon was nicknamed Drew Baal, what that means is let uh, the master contend. It was a, at first maybe a slight, but it turned out to be kind of a cool thing where they're saying, oh yeah, let's watch Baal stand up to this guy. Because Gideon overcame those false idols, those false gods. That's where his nickname came from. And that's what we see right here. A false god brought all Barith. What we see is they are taking money from that temple and they're giving it to Abimelech and he takes it. He, he receives it. He's like, okay. And in doing so, he is essentially abandoning Yahweh. He's abandoning the God of Israel. He says, okay, you know what? I don't care. My allegiances are to no God. My allegiances are to myself. So I'll take that money and I'm going to use it to hire some lawless, dangerous men. Literally what it calls them is they're empty, worthless men. I mean, these are, these are bad dudes. These are bad dudes. And, and there's a lot you can understand about a leader when you look at his followers, right? You, if you looked at, again, presidential campaigns coming up, if you see someone's, all of his picketers are like really crazy, like, I don't know, robots, you'd be like, oh, he loves robots. Oh, that was weird. Okay, but we see... If you see kind of people you don't know or trust, you see kind of uh, shady individuals supporting uh, some political leader, you probably think twice about wanting to align yourself with that camp, right? If you knew this one like crazy Uncle Steve, and all he does is make moonshine and bullets, you're like, okay, well, he loves this guy. Maybe I don't want to follow that leader in particular, whatever. All right, so what we see here is Abimelech basically bringing together the, camp, the, the money, he's bringing together his followers. What does he do with it? He went to his father's home in Ophrah, and he murdered his half-brothers, the 70 legitimate sons of Jerubbaal, on one stone. Only Jotham, Jerubbaal's youngest son, escaped because he hid. What we see is Abimelech took all that money, and he took those resources, and he took those men, and he went and he killed, he murdered all of his brothers, all 70 of them except for one that escaped. But he murders them on one stone. What that means is it's a public execution. Meaning he just lined them up, maybe even brought them out one at a time and just murder, 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 murder. One after another. And as soon as he gets that done, as soon as he gets those guys out of the way, as soon as he commits this incredibly vicious and just horrific act, all the leaders of Shechem, and Beth Milo, they assembled and they then went and made Abimelech king by the oak near the pillar in Shechem. And for us, we're like, the oak. What? Which one's that? Like, we don't, we're not familiar with the, with the region. But basically what this is, is it's probably the tree. It's probably an oak, a, a significant place where God made promises to Abraham. Where Moses interacted with God. It's a place that we see that is very significant in Israel's history. And he's standing there, 
and he is just spitting in the face of God by saying, I'm going to be a leader. I want to be over all of this. Abimelech was willing to do anything to take the power that he wanted. Anything. And you know, ambition on its own, by itself, it's not evil. Ambition can be good. God has given us desires and passions. But that ambition has to be combined with humility. It has to be controlled by the will of God. Otherwise, it takes us down a dark, dark path. So I would just challenge you and and, and ask you, man, where are you upset with authority? Where are you kind of assuming that you could do better? Where is it? Right now. Where are you focused on maybe gaining followers, either from up front or maybe you're just kind of grassroots campaign, pulling people to your side? Where are you focused on that? Because as believers, again, we are focused on being faithful with what God's given us. We see a leader in charge, and man, we don't instantly think, how can I beat that person? How can I overtake that person? Instead, we think, how can I serve that person? God is the ultimate authority over all these things. So if someone's in charge, it means God is allowing them to be in that place. Christ himself said, no one has power unless God has given it to him or her. So when we see someone in authority, our initial instinct is not, how do I put myself in that spot? It's how do I serve and and equip that person to be the best leader they can be? How can I be faithful with what God has put on my plate? Instead of looking at other people's plates and thinking, well, I want to take this and that and that. Where is that for you? In work or or in school or, or in an organization? Or maybe it's a social circle. Where are you focused on amassing your own kind of kingdom, building up your own rule, instead of being faithful with what God's given you, trusting that he knows what's best? When Abimelech takes the throne, they elect him. Uh, what, we, what we see is during that ceremony, uh, Jotham, so that one son that escapes, he stands up on a mountain nearby and he yells out at the crowd and he yells out a parable. When we look in our scripture, it's not just Jesus that tells parables. Parable meaning a story, an allegorical story that has a point and it has a message kind of hidden within just sort of whimsical things. Tortoise in the hare is an example, you know, like, hey, you should not be a rabbit, I guess. I don't know what the point is of that story, but you have a parable where you tell a story, but it has a, a specific point or meaning. Jotham stands up, he gives a parable, and he talks about uh, trees, because they're standing next to an oak. It's very fitting for the occasion. And he talks about, look, there are all these trees, and they're all standing around. They wanted to have a king. They want to have a king tree. And so they go to different trees, and they ask, hey, will you be our king? They go to an olive tree. They say, olive tree, will you be our king? And the olive tree's like, no, 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 no. I need to make olives. And they're like, okay. So they go to the fig tree. And they're like, fig tree, will you be our king? He's like, no, 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 no. I'm making figs. And you're like, oh, okay. So then they go to a vine. Uh, a vineyard, they find grape vines. And they're like, uh, v- vines, will, will you be our king? And they're like, no, 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 we're making grapes. And so eventually they go to the brambles. And the bramble meaning just like thorny little stupid bushes that are on the ground. Okay, you've known them, you've run into them as a child, and you hate them, all right? Brambles, they go to the brambles, like, brambles, will you be our king? And brambles are like, okay, yeah, that sounds good. And I'll protect you, and I'll have shade, and everyone can wave underneath me. And you know what? We're totally not going to get burned up by fire. That's what Bramble says. 
Now, what we see from this is there's a deeper story. There's a deeper meaning. These different trees, they represent uh, olives. They represented holiness. It was used to make oil, figs. It represented health. It was, it was a fruit of vitality. We see vines, the vineyard, the wine and grapes. It was a symbol for happiness. So we're seeing these uh, trees being approached, and they have good purposes and good uh, directions that they're going in existence in life. And so they're like, no, I'm going to focus on what I have. I'm going to focus on this thing that I've been given, this gift, this calling. I'm going to answer this. I'm going to focus on this. And then they ask the brambles, and brambles are like, okay, yeah, whatever. Because brambles are the worst. (laughs) And that doesn't even make sense, right? Like, physically, it doesn't make sense for brambles to be over trees. Essentially, he's saying, look, you have gone to the worthless, the most worthless of the worthless. Abimelech has nothing to offer you. He says, you know what? If this is truly in God's will, everything will be great. But Jotham promises, he, he prophesies, he says, but if this is outside of the Lord's will, you will all be burned. You're all going to burn up because of these brambles that you've put over yourselves as king. Abimelech and his followers, they hear it, they're like, ah, oh, whatever. And they just keep on keeping on. Jotham runs away to go hide. But what we see in that story, what we can glean from that is, man, Abimelech, what we're going to see in just a minute, he was not equipped. He was not equipped for that position. He did anything he could to achieve that position, and that position means he knew nothing about ruling. Pride can cloud your judgment. Pride can warp your perspective, just like it did with all of these poor people. <laughs> what are you going to do? I'm going to run my bike and you're all going to see it. Okay? <laughs> We've been there, right? We've been in that moment where we think, I've got this. I know where I'm supposed to be. I know what I'm doing. And yet we don't. Our pride, our personal uh, view of ourselves, it can be warped and, and affected uh, by either our own personal pride or even by people around us pumping us up. We have friends that maybe aren't the best friends because they don't tell us the truth. A true friend is going to sharpen you and, and encourage you, but still tell you, show you, man, this is an area where maybe you're not that equipped. Maybe you're not ready to take that spot. Maybe you're not actually ready to be in that position or do that thing or ask out that person or whatever it is. Maybe this isn't actually best for you. But man, so many times we're blinded to it. Abimelech was blinded to it. And sure enough, we see his rule starts to break apart almost immediately. Verse 25 says that the leaders of Shechem, they rebelled against Abimelech by putting bandits in the hills who robbed everyone who traveled by on the road. But Abimelech found out about it. This is three years into Abimelech's rule. Three, took three years. For the unloyal people of Shechem, who already proved that they couldn't be trusted, already proved that they would do anything to get what they want. Sure enough, three years into his rule, they betray him. They start setting up robbers. They were at basically a trade route. They were in a valley, uh, an important little area. And so they would set up robbers in that valley to catch caravans, to catch traders as they came through. And they would steal the supplies. And Abimelech, he had an inside guy in the city. And that inside guy tell, reported on it, spied on the city, told Abimelech, look, this is what they're doing. This is why you're having all these issues with this area where people are getting robbed and the trade is going down and the economy is going to hurt, all this, great, all this terrible stuff. So Abimelech, 
hears about it. He doesn't only hear about this, that, that they're rebelling and, and taking traitors. There's, in fact, another guy in Shechem who was just like Abimelech years before, three years before, and said, hey, you know what? I think I should be king. And everyone in Shechem was like, yeah, 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 okay, that sounds good. Like, and so they decided, we're going to support this new guy. And this guy starts to rise up through the ranks. He starts to rally everyone. He's like, we're going to go, and we're going to take over, and this is going to be great. And Abimelech hears about that. So Abimelech shows up. He gets a plan with his inside spy, and he waits for all of the men of the city to go out to work. They worked in fields, uh, an agricultural society, and so they all go out to the fields. Abimelech shows up, sneaks in with his army, and murders all the women and children that were in the city. Sneaks inside and murders them all. Blah. At the end of the day, the men are coming back to the city, coming back home. Abimelech waits outside the gates and murders all the men as they show up. He wipes out the entire population of Shechem. He's not done. Then he sets everything on fire. And he decides, you know what? I'm going to burn this place to the ground. He fought against the city all that day and he captured the city and he killed all the people in it. Then he leveled it. And he spread salt over it, meaning he set it ablaze. He burned that thing to the ground, destroyed every building, every wall, everything. And then he spread salt over it, which was a symbolic act, which was an act where you are telling everyone who's watching you, saying, look, I am cursing this land. Nothing will grow here. Nothing can be established here. I'm so sick of these people. These people committed such a heinous crime that no one could ever live here ever again. That's what Abimelech does. And I'll tell you, that's, that's not what you want to look for in a leader. Someone who moves in, burns everything to the ground, salts the earth, just because his rule was threatened. Just because a few people decided to rebel, he murdered innocents. Abimelech was willing to do anything to gain the position, to gain the power that he wanted. And it turned out he knew nothing about that position. But it was his position. So he had to just hang on to it as best he could at all costs. Some of us, man, we're already in a position of authority, whether it's in our friend group or in an organization, in a class, in a study group, whatever. We have bits of authority in our lives, with our family, with our friends, at our work, wherever. And that authority, that power, those little pieces of power that we have for ourselves, I just want to ask you, how do you handle it? How do you behave in that position? Are you focused on adding follower, trying to grow that position, grow that power? Are you focused on, on strengthening what you have, strengthening that little kingdom that you've built for yourself? Where you just shut down any sign of rebellion, any threat you feel, you just step in and just smash it down? Are you holding on to that position, on to that power at all costs, or are you focused on being humble and being faithful the things that God has given you with the abilities, with the positions that he's provided. All too often we can become Abimelech. And what's so tragic about that is it doesn't even pay off. 
What's so tragic is that it's not even a thing, this power, this position, this king that he built for himself, it doesn't even bring fulfillment. If it did, I'd say, hey, go for it. Abimelech did, you can do it, that's awesome. But what we see in the life of Abimelech is it doesn't even work out. It doesn't even matter. It doesn't result in his joy or his happiness or his absolute fulfillment. Instead, what we see in the life of Abimelech is that he moved on right after he burned down Shechem. He goes to Thebes, and he besieged it, and he captured it. Another city, these people, where they were kind of starting to stir against his rule because he was a terrible ruler. And it was there, or there was a fortified tower in the center of the city. So all the men and the women, as well as the city's leaders, they ran into it, they locked the entrance, and then they went up to the roof of the tower. Abimelech says, I'm going to do to you what I just didn't check him. I'm going to keep this burn party going. I'm going to just find anyone who has the slightest reservations about my rule, and I'm going to shut them down. And we read this. Whitney read this for us at the very beginning. He came, he attacked the tower, and when he approached the entrance of the tower to set it on fire, a woman, a nameless woman, threw a rock down on his head, and it shattered his skull. But it didn't kill him. He's mortally wounded. So in that moment, he called to his young man who carried his weapons, and he said, draw your sword and kill me. So they will not say, a woman killed him. So the young man stabbed him, and he died. And when the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they went home. I love that. <laughs> Abimelech is leading this group, these followers that he'd amassed for himself, this, this, this falling, these people that he had built up that were residents of his kingdom. He says, after me, come on, we just had this great victory in Shechem. Let's go to this tower. I'll light it on fire. It worked last time. Boom. Gets hit in the head, falls down in a disgraceful act, calls his servant to stab him through. He does. Everyone sees it and they're like, huh, all right. And they go home. I love that. Why? Because they don't care about him. They don't want to avenge his death. They couldn't give two flips about Abimelech. This guy didn't have followers. He just had people that were willing to put up with him. Who were willing to tolerate his rule for the time being. Why? Because he wasn't fit to rule. He wasn't fit for that position. He dies in an attempt to not be known as someone who was killed by a woman that was a big disgrace for soldiers. But what's so awesome is the only other time we see him pop up in Scripture is, is in Second uh, Samuel. And they're talking, and this is, a, this is army guys talking to each other, and he says, who struck down Abimelech, the son of Drew Beshel, or Besheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone down on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you go so close to the wall? Abimelech, literally, his only legacy is he becomes the poster boy for don't go too close to the wall, you dumb old Abimelech. Like, why did you go... <laughs> So close, you're going to get hit by a stone like that dum-dum Abimelech years before. That's literally his only legacy. That's it. That's what carries forward into Israel. That's how they know him. Same way that, you know, honestly, for the next few years, any quarterback we have, any Aggie quarterback who tries to, like, scramble outside the pocket at all, immediately is going to be compared to who? Giant football, right? They'll be like, well, that's what giant football did, so what do you think you're doing? Jimmy, or I don't know what the current guy is, Tyler, I don't know, whatever, it, it doesn't matter. So what we see, though, is this is what he's known for, and anyone, in, anyone moving forward, if they get to a close wall, they're like, don't be an Abimelech, I'm like, oh, you're right, and they back off. That's what we see 
in the life of Abimelech. That's his legacy. That's what carries forward beyond his death. Abimelech was willing to do anything to reach a position he knew nothing about. And as a result, at the end of it all, he lost everything. That's what we see in the life of Abimelech. That's what we see in anyone's life where they decide, man, I'm going to I'm going to dedicate my life to building my own kingdom. We can dedicate our lives to building our own little kingdoms on this earth, but I'm telling you right now, they will not last. They will not last. Recently, I've become quite skilled at building towers out of small plastic cups. Uh, It's because... well, maybe I'm a crazy person, but also because I have a nine-month-old. And so we have all these toys that are out and about, and she has these cups that you can, like, put inside each other. But I discovered you can also build a really cool tower. So I build this tower, and I love it, and I just adore it. And every single time, with absolutely no training, no prompting, okay? No one's ever shown my daughter, Charlotte, how to knock down towers. But every single time I build a tower, she can sense it. She can be in a different room. I build a tower, and suddenly I see this. <laughs> she smells it. She says, oh, <laughs> proud of something in there, huh? Every time. She immediately makes her number one focus in the world as bringing that tower down. She's got to bring it down every time. Now, I'm assuming that she's doing this in an attempt to remind me that, you know, uh, the world will inevitably end and our materialistic efforts are, are, are worthless. Uh, or she's a baby. I don't know. I'm going to be 50-50 on it right now. But it's true, and it's a reminder where I see, you know what? Yeah, I could spend my whole life, we could spend our whole lives building up that perfect little tower where suddenly I'm in that position in that organization that I always wanted to lead, or suddenly I'm in this position where I'm leading these people in this capacity that I always wanted to lead, or I'm in this place in work or this place at school or this place or wherever. I'm the funniest, coolest friend in my group. I have this and that. I have this relationship that I always wanted. And the truth is that all of those little kingdoms, all those little towers that we spend so much time building are going to come crashing down. Every time. Every time. What we're going to find is that that pursuit, that goal, it is a waste of our lives. Abimelech's pride, it warped his perspective and it, he wasted his life building a failed kingdom. It failed. He was an abject failure. We don't need to do that. We don't have to waste our lives building doomed kingdoms. Why? Because God offers us a better life. God offers us an eternal kingdom. Every authority figure that you ever encounter will fail and disappoint. But there is one ruler, one person above all else, above all others, who will satisfy your hopes, who will satisfy your desires, who will satisfy the yearnings of your heart. There's one ruler who can accomplish that, and it's Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. One day, this world will be done away with. It will be wiped away in the blink of an eye. There will be a new heaven, a new earth. 
And in that internal life, in that eternal situation, that internal existence, Jesus Christ is our king. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, spoke about this in chapter 9. He says, a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us, and he shoulders responsibility, and he is called the extraordinary strategist, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. His dominion will be vast. He will bring immeasurable prosperity. He will rule on David's throne and over David's kingdom, establishing it and strengthening it by promoting justice and fairness from this time forward and forevermore. The Lord's intense devotion to his people will accomplish this. Jesus Christ's rule is made possible because he humbled himself to the point that he died on a cross for us. He stepped out of heaven and onto earth to live and die and rise again on our behalf as the ultimate sign of of sacrifice and humility. He died for us. Because of that, God looks at him and he says, you have deserved, you have accomplished what no one else could accomplish. You deserve what no one else deserves. You deserve all the blessing that I promised to Abraham. You deserve all the blessing I promised to Jacob. You deserve, you deserve all the, the people in all existence to look at you, that they would bow down, that they would go down to their knee, and that they would confess that you're Lord. Everyone's going to do that one day because Jesus Christ is the only person worthy of that reign. He's the only person worthy of that worship. And we're all going to see that one day. All of us that maybe kind of have a glimpse of it, a glimmer of it, we're going to have an even better understanding of that one day. And what's beautiful is that he's not a ruler who's going to rise up and feel threatened by his people. He's not a ruler who's going to rise up and squelch rebellions or, or make everyone do what he wants them to do. Instead, he is driven by what? A, devo- a devotion to his people. An intense love for his people. So he's going to bring peace and righteousness. He's going to bring love. And that rule is going to be eternal. That's what we see. That's what we have to look forward to. That's the kingdom that God is promising to give us. So my challenge to you, my question to you is, will you trust? Will you trust that promise? Will you trust that God will provide a new kingdom, that God can provide a better life thanks to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Whether you're leading or following, are you trusting God? Are you humbling yourself before him? Are you humbling yourself to the point of a servant who lives and dies for the people around him? Will you accept, will you allow God to rule and direct your life? Are you willing to do that? Whether you're in authority, whether you're looking at authority that you just don't agree with, are you going to trust that ultimately there's a kingdom, there's an earth, there's an existence, there's a life beyond this one? That no matter what this situation holds for us, no matter what this world holds for us, no matter what this life holds for us, whether it's awesome or whether it's terrible, whether we love it, whether we hate it, no matter what happens, do you trust that there's a life beyond this? That there's a calling above and beyond just amassing our own little kingdoms. God calls us to be faithful. So we're going to take a moment right now. And we're going to grab partners. If you haven't been before, I'll, I'll just tell you what, every once in a while what we love to do. We've done a lot consistently or in the last couple of weeks. But we love to grab a partner, one or two people around you. And you're going to share with them something that they can pray for you. 
Because the reality is that, man, we are brothers and sisters under Christ. If you are a believer, you are a part of the body of Christ. And we don't all want to just like look ahead. And this isn't, this morning, this time isn't just about you and God or you and the message, you and the songs. This time should be about the body. So you're going to find one or two partners around you and you're going to share briefly where is God calling you to be faithful? Where is God calling you to be faithful? You can be as specific or, or, or vague as you want. You can just say, in my, with my roommates, or, or God's calling me to be faithful with uh, this class, or God's calling me to be faithful at my workplace. Again, you don't have to give all the details. Don't have to go, don't make it doesn't have to be long. Just share with that person, where is God calling you to be faithful? Where do you feel the Holy Spirit grabbing a hold of you right now? Share that with your partner. And then take a minute, as the band is coming up and as they're going to be playing, take a minute to pray for each other. Please pray for each other. Not just this morning, but throughout the week. Remember that request right in your phone. Pray for that person that God would continue to call them to faithfulness, that God would strengthen them and equip them to be faithful. Because we can't do it on our own. So grab a partner. Ready, set, go. Go.